0: what really is universal design for learning how is it an issue of equity what can you stop doing as a teacher to make time for providing the targeted support your unique students need these are some of the questions we will address in this episode of learner engagement activated the podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learner engagement for students at all ages, levels, and environments. This podcast hosts leaders in the field to bring you advice for how to increase learner engagement to improve student outcomes. I'm your host, Ann Fency, And in this episode, I speak with UDL expert, Katie Novak about reframing our approach to teaching from the sage on the stage to the guide on the side. Ready, set, activate. Katie Novak is an internationally renowned education consultant, an author, adjunct professor at UPenn, and a former assistant superintendent of schools in Massachusetts. Dr. Novak has more than 19 years of experience in teaching and administration, an earned doctorate in curriculum and teaching, and is the author of 10 published books, including the best-selling education books UDL Now, Equity by Design, and UDL and Blended Learning. Katie designs and presents professional learning opportunities, both nationally and internationally, focusing on implementation of universal design for learning, UDL, multi-tiered systems of support, MTSS, and universally designed leadership. You can find out more about her and get some great resources on her website at novaceducation.com. Let's talk. Can you begin by explaining UDL in layman's terms and how it relates to learner engagement?
1: Perfect. So I love this question. (laughs) So when we think about universal design, I always like to use analogies because I think that that's a great way to explain in layman's terms. Mm -hmm. So I want to start off by imagining that we're going to have a dinner party and we're going to have like 40 different people at this party and we know they all have very different dietary needs. They come from different cultural backgrounds and it wouldn't make sense for us to only serve a meat lasagna. because not everybody could eat. So our goal is essentially, we want everyone to have a lovely dinner, and we, as designers of this party, need to make choices that will allow every single person to really feel like they can reach that goal. But if we serve meat lasagna, we're leaving out anyone who's vegan, vegetarian, lactose intolerant, gluten sensitive, (laughs) or just doesn't like Italian food. So when we universally design something, we think about our goal, And then we think about the barriers of one-size-fits-all design. Mm -hmm. And we create pathways for the different options that our learners have to learn, the strategies and tools they use, and how they share what they know. So if we were to go to a dinner party, we would expect to have some flexibility in either like family style, where we make our own plate, maybe a buffet, Mm -hmm. maybe a potluck. And in our classrooms, we need to think about what really is it that our learners have to know? So I teach a graduate course at Penn. And you know, if I think about, I want everyone to to understand what engagement is. I don't need to print out a copy of a peer reviewed article on engagement and say the only way that you can learn about engagement is reading this article and then posting your answer to the discussion board. (laughs) So I think about like, what are all the ways that people can learn about the meaning of engagement? Reading or listening to text, listening to podcasts or watching videos, working alone or together. It's like a learning buffet. And <laughs> then we think about, well, how will people share what they have learned about engagement? Well, what really is my goal? You know, If my goal is writing, then I can provide opportunities to write a blog or write an academic paper or use voice to text. If my goal is not writing, this is amazing opportunity to say, you can choose to make a podcast, you can choose to make a really awesome infographic, you can write. And so the way to describe it best is simply recognizing what are your firm goals and creating multiple pathways for people to meet those firm goals while allowing them to make choices for themselves. Yeah. Okay. Well, that does sound like a much
0: nicer dinner party <laughs> and a much nicer classroom. <laughs> yes, so um, but it, it sounds like a lot um, and, you know, takes a lot of planning. Um, so is why is it really important, though, like in terms of the learner? Is it really just
1: for students with disabilities accommodating them or does it help all students? So this is definitely for all students because, you know, we have a couple of different things in education right now. And one of is the lack of engagement that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. which is the lack of like purpose and motivation and self-awareness. And one thing that universal design can help with is increasing that engagement and increasing essentially opportunities to practice those next generation skills. So as soon as I provide you with a choice, to say, you know, for instance, you know, I want you to answer this essential question. Would it be better for you, you know, to to write a rough draft first on paper or would it be better for you to make an outline or to fill out a concept map so that you can get your thoughts together? You actually have to stop and really think about in that moment like what your needs are and what your relative strengths are and to better make a responsible decision for your learning, but that is a transferable skill. Mm-hmm. That to be successful in life, we have to be more self-aware, we have to be better decision makers. And so yes, sometimes the barrier is access. So if I'm assigning a text and a student has a disability like you know, severe dyslexia and is unable to decode that text, I don't wanna exclude them from accessing the material, so I might record my voice reading the text or provide it Mm -hmm. digitally so a student can translate it or use a screen reader. And that does allow access for students with disabilities as it eliminates the barrier of the inability to decode. That being said, it does provide every learner with opportunities to say, oh, you know what? I didn't think I was gonna be able to finish that text because I'm so busy and I have such a long commute but now i can listen to it while i'm yeah. driving yeah or wow i never even thought about the fact that you could get that text read aloud to you and just that's going to be awesome for me because i can like read it Print it out while listening to it and that mm-hmm. might help with my comprehension so it's yeah. all about helping learners recognize what is it that they have to do to be successful and if the barrier is engagement then we have to provide more pathways for students to kind of be interested and to build that perseverance okay um so this um
0: i we, we were talking on another episode about universal design for learning and um something that i often get from educators is well this
1: is just learning styles <gasps> oh my god <laughs> okay so um there is no such thing as learning styles and Some people think about that as like, well of course we have learning styles. We don't. So let's start off with the theory of learning styles where that our brain was actually wired for different types of learning. That Mm -hmm. some people's brain made them visual learners or auditory learners. And that theory made sense before we could actually see what was happening in people's brains Mm -hmm. through like BMRI technology. And we realized that people use their brains in the same way. And somebody who says, well, I'm not a visual learner, or even somebody who is blind, does have a very active visual cortex. Mm -hmm. So there is absolutely no brain-based learning style. And there's been some really, really great research published on that that people's perception of their learning style is actually not serving them well as learners and the american psychological association put out a press release in you know late 2010s mm-hmm. that said that a belief in learning styles was detrimental so what is it then it's that certainly we have learning preferences mm-hmm. and certainly we have learning strengths but that doesn't mean that we are wired for a single pathway. And what we need is gonna be very, very different based on the situation. So the analogy that I use is, you know, there's lots of different styles of shoes and mm-hmm. somebody might say, ah, oh, I'm a heels person or I'm a <laughs> boots person or I'm an Uggs person, whatever, right? Yeah. And it's like, yes, you prefer that. Yes, you like it. And it might even make your feet feel really good. But you have to change your shoes for some events because if it's freezing cold outside, even though you're a flip flops person, (laughs) you might have to wear some boots. Now, I always joke that I'm a heels person. I love like really bright, you know, four inch heels. However, like that's very contextual because I wouldn't wear those to run and I wouldn't wear them to the beach. And even if I was going to an event, what if I sprained my ankle or what if it was really icy out, like it doesn't make sense. And so what a belief in learning styles really does is it creates a fixed mindset Mm. is like, this is the only way that I can do it. Or I'll be able to do it better if I had these, these pathways, but sometimes the pathways aren't appropriate. So what we say in universal design is firm goals, Flexible means Mm. so it doesn't mean that you'll have all of these options and choices all of the time It's that you have these pathways when the pathways will lead you to where you need to go So, you know sometimes like there's people listening who I'm sure are writing instructors Might teach research writing or might have a really authentic project where students have to write some sort of you know technical text right Mm -hmm. and they're like, well, universal design doesn't make sense because I don't want the students making a skit or doing a video, and it's like, well, that yeah. wouldn't be appropriate if you're because that's not the goal. Yeah, to prepare something for publication, but you could still be incredibly flexible about whether or not they, you know, used their voice to type it, how many options you provided for peer review, the types of graphic organizers people used, and you know, I am a, a writer. And I have like a plugin that checks my uh, my citations for me. It's like a Biblio citation plugin. Mm-hmm. So even as a writer, yes, it it would be lovely if I memorized every single thing about the Chicago style guide and the yep. MLA yeah. style guide. But as I publish for different people, they require different styles. And why not just allow me to use any tool I need to figure that out? And so that's the level of flexibility that you provide. It's just always about what really is the goal. So we're not lowering expectations. We're just saying, is there another way to reach that high expectation?
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: like if we go back to your
0: dinner party analogy, it would be like you don't have to buy the entire store and make every single possible dish. You really need to know your audience and find the foods that work for them.
1: Yep. Yep. And that's why potluck is a really great analogy because, Mm -hmm. like, you know, we can say to our learners, like, you know, especially once you get to, you know, higher education, you know, what do you need to be successful? What has worked well for you in the past? Let's share our strategies with each other. It is so fascinating to sit with a group of writers and ask them how they go about approaching writing. Mm -hmm. Like, what is your method for writing drafts? And to just see how incredibly diverse and different that is. And sometimes that's like a potluck conversation is let's talk about all the different ways this could be done Mm -hmm. before we create our plans to do it. And then you know that if your plan runs into kind of a dead end, there's always another pathway to adapt.
0: Mm, Yep. Okay. Huh.
1: Okay. And how is that different than differentiated instruction? So differentiated instruction is very responsive based on data and it's essentially something that's very teacher directed. Mm -hmm. So universal design for learning is how do I design a learning environment so that all students have options and choices for making choices about their learning and the materials and strategies they're going to use but as an instructor I'm also going to use formative assessment data to basically say wow these four students need something different. So mm-hmm. again, because you know, I was an English teacher when I taught in the K-12 space, um, you know now I teach a lot of uh, courses focused on universal design, but you know I do teach a course on academic writing. And mm-hmm. in that course, certainly, I can provide lots of flexibility in like, here's a bunch of exemplars, here's some really great outlines, here's opportunities to come in for writing conferences. I provide that flexibility. And then the rough draft comes in and I realize I have four adults who are not yet able to organize their writing in a way that is appropriate for publication. Mm -hmm. It's just all over the place. I'm going to say, dear four students, I need to meet with you in the next class for 20 minutes to provide you some explicit instruction on organization of a manuscript. We're mm-hmm. not going to do that for everybody because not everybody needs it so when you think about designing a classroom you think about how do I design it universally so all students do have opportunities to kind of create their own pathways and then once you have data you need to create flexible groups and regrouping of students to say this student they need something different and mm-hmm. so you know uh, Carol Tomlinson who is like a great pioneer of differentiated instruction, you know, she says that she's really committed to flexible grouping and regrouping. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying in this class, these are my quote unquote low students. Yeah. Right. That's, that's a group that is like finite. Yeah. Yeah. This is the group that is low. This is my group of students with disabilities. Students with disabilities are not the same. And there's this beautiful diversity among that population. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really about looking at the goals and saying, this group of students have not met this goal yet. This group of student has. And what about the group of students who have significantly exceeded a goal? How do I push that group? Yeah. And so it's really thinking about what my formative assessment data tells me, allows me to differentiate instruction for different groups of students, essentially to help them recognize that like, you made all of these decisions and they weren't effective Mm -hmm. for your writing organization. So now as a teacher, I need to be responsive to that. Whatever decisions you made, your writing is so incredibly strong and the organization is so effective and so subtle that I want to push you in a new direction that goes beyond the scope of my expectations because you really have met them. This is ready to be published now at a formative level and -hmm. there's no need for you to go through these motions. So uh, really, inclusive instructor will always use both of these things. So universal design instruction, provide opportunities for students to look at the goals, to really think about their pathways, to become more expert in creating strategies for themselves. And then when we have evidence Mm -hmm. about the learning, then we do need to differentiate instruction and potentially provide different learning opportunities or different mini lessons, or even sharing different resources with different groups of kids or yeah. adults in your case.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it really speaks to the need for data, the need for doing formative assessment in your classes. Yes. But that's one more thing to add. So so like pragmatically, like if, if a teacher is brand new to universal design for learning, or they've heard about it and they think, oh, maybe I'll try something, how do they find the time and resources to get started and to not be overwhelmed, but to start in a way that's like, let me try this. And if it doesn't work, let me try something else, not just give up on UDL.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I I think is people are spending a ton of time already, and we're not having a great impact on all learners. So I think that it's not about adding time to what we're already doing. It's about replacing some of the things that we're already doing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's only a certain amount of time. And right now, the way we're spending it isn't working for all of our learners. You know, especially our learners, you know, who have been traditionally underserved, our students with disabilities, our students who are learning English as an additional language, our students of color, right, is what we are spending our time on is not yet giving us our desired impact. So, you know, I always say think about what you're spending your time doing already and is there a better way to do that? So, you know for me for example is I would never grade a formative assessment Mm -hmm. I would just put them into piles and then I would say okay everyone today in class This is what you're gonna be working on and I'm gonna be pulling three different small groups to provide instruction and I will Mm. verbally say all of you are gonna work towards this goal because your work would be so much stronger with this revision. And like, let's look at this together. So you think about like a math instructor, right? Is, you know, you get a test back and you know, you have some students who nailed it and some students who need so much more support. And yet if I were to lecture the entire class on like, these are some of the things that I saw in the test that were problematic, you have kids sitting in that room who already know how to do it. Yeah. And, you know, so I think that we're spending a lot of time like, okay, I'm going to plan my whole class instruction. I'm going to plan this whole class project when it's really about let me just plan the design of that first step. And then once I have that formative assessment data, then I can start pulling small groups Um, as you think about like creating the flexibility long term. It's about like, what are the barriers? So, you know, if you're spending a bunch of time and you're providing students with a a one size fits all learning experience, or even they have options and choices, but the data is showing it's not serving their learning, my question is always, why? And is there something that I could do? So, Mm -hmm. for instance, you know, uh, a lot of us in our classrooms will give students text, right? Maps, data you know, videos, audio, right? Like we provide Mm -hmm. students with some sort of text or digital text and we'll say, you know, consume the text, read it, watch the video, you know. And when we do that afterwards, we all know that we'll have students who are like, I didn't get it. So what are (laughs) some things that we can do to prevent that? Why didn't they get it? And it's like, maybe they didn't understand the purpose for reading.
0: So Mm. before we
1: share the text, and I just put quote fingers, because none of you can see me. But, um, <laughs> before you share the text, this is why we're reading the text. This is the essential question. Here are some guided questions that as you are reading, you want to be able to answer this. Yeah. we can provide reminders that when you're reading complex text, you read and reread and you use annotation strategies. So like, you know, trying to summarize every page before you go onto the next page, or, you know, drawing a quick visual, like, explicitly teaching comprehension strategies. You know, if you're watching a video, you know, once you get to the end of, you know, once you get to this part, go back and reflect and summarize and answer these questions. Um, Maybe it's because they don't have a background knowledge to be able to consume the text. So now I have Mm -hmm. to say, all right, before you watch this video, it might be helpful if you first look at these images or you have a conversation with a classmate. Like it's basically a problem solving framework why aren't students getting this knowing that the answer is not the same for all students? Yeah. So it's not saying, Oh, some of the students might not have understood the purpose. So now I'm provided guiding questions and now I'm forcing everyone to write every answer to the guiding questions. Well, how is that serving learners who did truly comprehend, you know, at the beginning? So for me, it's more of, we're going to explore this text, or watch this video, or examine this data, and then I'm gonna give you a formative assessment. That formative assessment will determine what you do next, so I want you to do as well on it as possible. One thing that might help you is to note-take using these guided questions, Mm, and then you can use that on the formative assessment. So then you're really eliminating the barriers that could prevent building understanding. But when you still have learners who might not be able to share that they've met the criteria yet, now I can go back and I can pull that small group. So it's a very, very different model of instruction.
0: Yeah, so well, kind of like choose your own adventure
1: mm-hmm. that
0: you you have to get to a decision point and you can't get there unless you have knowledge about why you're gonna make one choice or another. So that's that's an interesting way of normally like a teacher would prepare lesson plans so everything is planned out in advance so instead of you know putting it all in ink maybe you pencil in you know points where you're going to collect data and then here are some options that might happen afterwards
1: yep
0: yep exactly yeah so and i I, it was interesting to hear you say that you you don't grade everything um Yeah, you and I also saw on your website, um, by the way, your website has like so many amazing, great resources. So that would be a great place for people to start. Um, But you had an article on there about how homework might not help students and might even be detrimental to their grades. So if you don't give homework, though, how do you encourage engagement outside of the classroom in an equitable way? But how do you also you know get that formative data if there's no
1: grade attached to it that the students might not do it so i you know as an instructor I, it's not to say that i wouldn't provide credit for completing it i'm just not mm-hmm. going to give it a grade okay. so you know it might be something along the lines of like you're going to create a rough draft Of this or you're going to complete these math problems or you're going whatever it happens to be and you know It is for me to be able to provide you with this small group instruction and for you to be able to see if the decisions you made have served you Responsibly, so like this is a a great opportunity for us to all decide what we do after this How does my instruction change? How does your decision-making change? And so you know if you do it you get one out of one it's done yeah. Right? If you don't do it, I have no ability to provide you with any feedback, yeah. <laughs> and you don't know like what has served your learning. So you know you can certainly say you know I'm going to give you credit, but I have I've never you know I have not experienced in any large scale learners whether I taught high school or middle school or adult learners who didn't do it because it didn't have a grade mm. assigned. There's only a certain number of students who really care about the grade. You know, to begin with. And you know, not all students are motivated by grades. Like one of my own children is like I mean a C is good, mom. It's like average. And I'm like, (laughs) Yeah, yep, you do you, baby. But like you know, if you're not motivated by grades, yeah, then like you know, how do you create a classroom? And it's like, we need to be motivated by learning and we need to be motivated by our own decision making. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I look at a formative assessment, I would basically like sit with students and be like, let me help you make this stronger and let me help you reflect on your own decisions. So homework is problematic for a lot of different reasons. It assumes, first of all, that students do have time at home to do the work or after school to do the work. Mm -hmm. which very clearly excludes uh, a number of different learners. So, you know, what about, you know, older siblings who have to work to support their family? Mm -hmm. So like giving homework assumes that I go to school from, let's say 8 a.m. until 3 p.m. and then I come home and that there is time available for me to lean into that work. And that is a really, really privileged lens because some of our learners do have to work full time. You know, they do have to take care of younger siblings. Um, young learners especially may not have support at home, you know, in the way that you have a family member able to kind of help you through. Yep. And you know, young learners, of course they can be independent, but like they need support. You yeah. know, they need someone to help get supplies, right? Yeah. So I think about, you know, sometimes when we and it's it's not to say that we wouldn't provide homework. It's I think grading homework without recognizing like what you're actually grading. So if I am a super, super hardworking kid and I am trying really, really hard in school and then I have to go and work five hours and then come home and take care of my siblings and if I can get to the homework, it's very, very late at night and then I'm tired when I go to class, and, you know, and we look at all those things and it's like, is that, should that really be negatively impacted in a grade if the learning is happening? Yeah, exactly. so uh, a grade should reflect whether you have learned something. And if I have already proven to you that I know this on a very high level in your class, why is there going to be a punitive measure? Because I do not have additional time outside of school to complete this work that's very much compliance based. Mm. And, you know, I think we just have to to think about it differently. My favorite work, uh, my favorite book on this, it's written by Joe Feldman, and he wrote a book called Grading for Equity. And in it, he just discusses, like, what do grades truly represent? Mm-hmm. we want grades to represent learning, a formative assessment is done before the teaching is done. And so that doesn't represent learning. It represents a super early point you know, yep. in this process. So if I do a, a lesson on, you know you know, anything, right? I provide a mini lesson, and then I provide students with options and choices to share what they know, and then they give it back, and some of the students just didn't get it like, but they've done the work, like, what yeah. <laughs> purpose of tanking a grade? When yeah, it's like, okay, now that I know you didn't get it, now I'm gonna do something differently. When it comes to the summative, I have now been as responsive as I can, we've provided self reflection, you know, and at that point, it does represent whether you've learned something or not. But yeah. like, when I first started teaching, I would like take away points, if you didn't write your name on the paper, if you didn't cut off what I call those little nurnies on the side of the notebook, oh. <laughs> And it was yeah. like, you know, if you got an A, it doesn't mean you had really, really strong work in the class because you could end up losing points to have the best work in the class because you forgot to cut off the thing yeah, the side and yep. put your name. And it's like, that's not really what grades need to represent. Like, they really should represent student competency. And if we are going to measure learning let's take away some of the barriers that prevent students from, you know, being able to really share what they know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's
0: kind of like mastery based
1: grading. Yes.
0: Yeah. Where you're actually grading the, whether they've mastered the content, not have they done all the steps along the way. And like, I, I stopped grading attendance in my classes. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. What, the fact that you
1: um
0: were you had life challenges that prevented you from attending class, that shouldn't affect your grade if you can still do all of the work and still learn the content, you know with all of the materials and supports I've provided. So you know students are often kind of surprised to hear that class attendance is optional. Yep. you know i I expect that you'll come because I plan to make your time worthwhile but I'm not gonna grade you on it. I'm gonna grade you on your work. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's in, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I have three questions that I ask all of our guests. So first, what is a major barrier to learner engagement that you
1: have experienced? I, I, think, I think that I'll, I am much more engaged in something that I have agency and I feel like I have power and control in so you know, for me, I, I am very compliant. You know, I, I would attend almost any lecture or any classroom, you know, and I would listen, and I would give you the work. Mm-hmm. But the work that I've always been like, really passionate about and the work that I've put in way more effort than I needed to in was something that I felt like I was really driving it. And so I think that the biggest barrier is we do not give people even the opportunity to be self-directed. And so when we're looking at the universal design for learning framework, engagement is essentially unpacked with three different guidelines, which is recruiting people's interest, right? Getting people Mm -hmm. interested, helping them sustain effort and persistence, and then also helping them to self-regulate. And that essentially means that if I'm really interested in something and I want to achieve it, I need to put in a bunch of effort, but Mm -hmm. I have to be able to deal with, the outcome of putting in significant effort, which is always going to be frustration. (laughs) Cognitive dissonance. When you reach for something out of your reach, there is going to be some friction. And when we recognize that, we create classrooms that provide options and choices for that. So saying to learners, listen, these are what the goals are. You might not be super interested in this content, right? You might not be super interested in this unit. However, I want to provide options and choices because you might be interested in working with your classmates or maybe Mm -hmm. you are really interested in, you know, digital technology and that way you can share what you know using a digital technology. So I'm trying to get people more interested by providing those options and choices, but it's also saying like this is going to be difficult my job is not to make this easy for you, yeah. but my job is to help you realize that you can do it if you take advantage of the right strategies and the right tools, and you also take time to balance and manage and back off, right? Because like, it's really important that we understand that success is not linear. It's a little bumpy. Mm -hmm. And so like, as you're working in this course, there are opportunities to revise. There are gonna be these formative assessment check-ins. You know, you absolutely can take, um, you know, make up the class, you know, in another way, if you're unable to do that, you know, for mental health reasons, or you have something going on with your family. And so I think that sometimes instructors are like frustrated that students are not engaged, but we're not designing learning that to include a key ingredient to engagement, which is agency we have to yep. provide options and choices for how students learn, share what they know, for the different like tools and scaffolds they use. We have to provide lots of feedback to ensure that we're challenging everybody, but it's also about creating a space that recognizes that we are different in, you know, how much effort we can apply before like backing off and taking a quick break. Um, you know, being more mindful of that variability. So I think that we need to ask students, like, what barriers are you facing? And Mm -hmm. how could we minimize them or eliminate them through design?
0: Yeah, but even just that conversation around effort, effortful learning is better learning, that if, if it's not hard, you're probably not learning very much you probably already knew it
1: you probably already knew it. it's not hard
0: yeah so it should be hard but you know we don't want it to be impossible so you know having that conversation around when is a good time to take a break and you know how do you measure your small successes along the way so my next question is about the future what should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions
1: on learner engagement that isn't fully being addressed yet? I, I really think it's it's the student voice piece. I think that's so underutilized. Is you know especially as you know instructors, you know, um, I mean, college instructors actually probably ask for feedback a little more frequently because we're required to give a course evaluation. Yeah. Yep. But like, it's too late. Like, they're already <laughs> done with your course. And yep. So you know, I think that. Um, Whether, you know, you're teaching kindergarten or whether you're teaching, you know, graduate school, it's really about saying like, these are the course objectives. That's not negotiable. These are the firm goals of this course. And we will not be flexible about these firm goals. That being said... As we work toward these firm goals, we want to be as flexible as possible. And what I really like is asking two questions. You know, once I'm like two modules into a graduate course, or when I taught um, in the K to 12, you know, I would usually do it probably like mid-October, we're six weeks into the course. And Mm -hmm. I would say, what is working really well (laughs) for you in here as it relates to you like finding meaning? Like, this is not a fun meter my job is not to entertain you <laughs> so it's like really saying like what is working in this class for your learning and yeah students will say things like oh i really like how you always provide exemplars or it's great that we have options for additional help or office hours or you know i like at the beginning of the class how right so you get a sense of like what is worth replicating because we need praise But Mm -hmm. I also love to say, like, what would better serve your learning? And I always use the sentence stems, it would be really great if, or Mm -hmm. it would be really valuable if. And does this mean that you're suddenly going to just automatically do everything that students say? No, but you are going to reflect on it and say, is there an opportunity for growth or some design here? So, you know, somebody might say, it would be really great if, You provided the PowerPoints ahead of class because I would really like to print them out to take notes. And that's something that I would be like, huh, okay. Like, (laughs) I never really thought, I never really thought about like opening up the module before class. Like, it just wasn't on my radar as being a barrier. Yeah. so, I always like to ask, you know, periodically, like, what is working well here and what could we do differently? Mm-hmm. And in that, we're modeling, like, oh, there are things that I could do differently too. Yeah.
0: And, or maybe you have a reason why you
1: don't want to release them early or something. And, but again, then that's a conversation to say, yeah. you know, to be honest with you, yeah. I sometimes are working on them the day before. And I, you know, and sometimes they're not going to be available. Right. But like, I think it's just that transparency, that, that conversation of I'm not holding them from you. If they are done already, then I will release them. But you know, sometimes, you know, teachers will sometimes prep the night before. That's not unreasonable. Sometimes you just get like a little bit behind and it's like, I'm preparing it, I'm preparing my class for tomorrow. Yeah, Um, And I think every, especially I work with educators, they all understand (laughs) that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but at least you're giving them an opportunity to tell you, you know, what they would like. And I do that with my students and I get such fabulous ideas from them. And, you know, I never would have thought of all of the ideas, you know, that I, the things that I do in my class now, that students find helpful, I wouldn't have thought of those all on my own. Yep. Yeah. So as we wrap up, my final question is, what is the one thing you want
1: people to remember from this conversation about learner engagement? So I I think there's two words that I often use when I talk about the purpose of our work is choice and voice. And I think that we can increase engagement by providing choices for how our learners work towards our course objectives or our standards or our goals. But it's not enough if we also are not asking for people to share their voices. You Mm -hmm. know, asking, like, what barriers are you facing? What do you need? What has worked in other classrooms? You know, um, and if you're working with very, very young students, that might be a question that you ask parents or families. Because, like, we, the best professional development I receive is listening to the voices of the people who I, you know, I serve, that I work with and work for. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, as a college instructor, waiting until the end of the semester to find out that a student did not find your class serving them. It's like, <laughs> yeah. well, I, you know, if I had known that, you know, yeah. two weeks yeah. into the course I could have actually done something about it. And so I always think that creating a culture where you're really, you know, evidence informed is important. So that's what I leave you with is if we want to engage learners, we need to provide more choices. Again, completely focused on the grade level content or the course objectives, and we have to listen to their voices. Mm. That is really excellent
0: advice. And um, so Katie Novak, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, I'll point people to your website because there are such really great resources on there. And it's, The way that you describe UDL sounds really doable. So I hope this gives hope to a lot of educators who are ready to give it a try uh, for the first time or
1: again. Yes, absolutely. Continue to lean in. I'm still learning about it all the time. You know, just because you, you know, even once you get to a point where you're like, I have some expertise in universal design for learning, the needs of our learners are always changing. Yeah. (laughs) New barriers are always popping up. So this is a field that you'll be learning in forever.
0: Yeah. It's definitely not one and done.
1: Nope. Not at all. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. All right. It was wonderful to chat with you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Learner engagement activated is produced by the Learner Engagement Division of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. This episode was hosted by Ann Fency with sound editing and production by Ann Fency. The music is from Purple Planet. Visit the Learner Engagement Division online at www.learnerengagement.org, and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at aect.org.